This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Just a heads up, y'all. This episode you're about to hear contains descriptions of violence and genocide. Please proceed accordingly. What's good, y'all? You're listening to Code Switch. I'm Gene Demby. And on this episode, a story about memory and unremembering. And bringing us that story is one of our editors here on Code Switch, Leah Danella. Hey, Gene. So, Leah, I'll let you take it away. Can you just set the scene for all of us? Where are we starting? Okay, so the date is October 30th, 2022. It's a Sunday, the day before Halloween. And I've just hopped in my trusty old neon blue Nissan Versa rental car and driven about 20 minutes from Antioch, Tennessee, where I've been staying, to East Nashville. It's early, about 7 a.m., so the streets are pretty quiet, save for the sounds of airplanes overhead. And the rain, which is slowly getting heavier. I'm walking to a coffee shop called The Frothy Monkey, which turns out to be kind of crowded. And as all this is happening, I'm kind of mentally hyping myself up because I'm getting ready to meet someone and ask him some very personal questions about his race and identity and history. But to be honest, I know almost nothing about him. And for several months last fall and winter, this was a pretty typical start to the day for me. All right, so we should probably back way up here um, yeah. and explain to listeners uh, that you were in Tennessee because uh, you were working on a project where you were talking to black immigrants all over the state about their lives, their dreams, their worries. That's right. And two of my big questions were, how do black immigrants think about what it means to be black? And how do their racial identities change once they move to the U.S.? I mean, and there was something really specific that got you interested in those questions, right? Yeah, basically, I came across this Pew Research report about black demographic trends in the U.S., Mm -hmm. and it was full of a lot of fascinating information. But one of the things that really jumped out to me was that the number of black immigrants in this country has skyrocketed in the past 20 years. Okay. So just for a little bit of context, as recently as 1980— Very good year. (laughs) Indeed. Uh, only about 3% of black Americans had been born outside of the U.S. And that immigrant population was mostly concentrated in New York City and mostly made up of Caribbeans. Right. I remember when I first went to college in New York, uh, I was playing basketball and people were talking to me in Creole. And I realized later that they thought my name was Jean and I was just anglicizing it. Which is kind of probably a safe assumption at that time. Mm-hmm. But there were a couple of pieces of legislation that kind of set the stage for that particular demographic reality to start to change. Um, So first, and this is going back way in time a little bit, there was the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965. Mm -hmm. That comes up on a show a lot. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of step one. And then years later, Congress passed an amendment to that, the Refugee Act of 1980. And 10 years after that, it passed the Immigration Act of 1990, which included something called the Diversity Immigrant Visa Program. And so the combination of all of those different pieces of legislation meant that as the new millennium was kind of rolling in, 
immigrants from countries in Africa in particular had a lot more ways of getting to the U.S. Oh, okay. So hence the skyrocketing population of black immigrants then. Exactly. I mean, between 2000 and 2020, the U.S.'s black African immigrant population more than tripled. Okay, wow. Yeah, so I really wanted to talk to people who are part of this relatively new cohort of immigrants about those big questions that we just mentioned. Okay, so all that background makes a lot of sense. But Leah, um, you haven't answered the question that's bothering me. (laughs) Why Tennessee? Like, I don't necessarily think of it as a haven, a hotbed for black immigrants. Like, why were you there? Uh, Well, that's your bad, Gene, because I'll have you know two things. One is that the largest share of black immigrants in the U.S. now lives in the South. Huh. Second, Tennessee has the fastest growing black immigrant population of any state in that region, mostly concentrated in Nashville. I talked to people from all over the place with all sorts of stories. I'm originally from Honduras. I'm second generation Somali refugee. I was a child soldier uh, from Sudan. I became the first Nigerian woman elected to any office in the United States. Growing up in Haiti, I knew I was Haitian. Um, I knew that we were black. But I didn't really know I was black (laughs) until I was here. So you were talking to all these people who had all these stories about coming to the U.S. and trying to figure out how things work here. And it sounds like this one conversation on a rainy Sunday morning just really stood out to you for some reason. Yeah. Um, hmm. So the the person I met that day was someone whose story to me painted such a vivid picture of what it feels like to move from a majority black country to mm-hmm. a majority non-black country and suddenly discover all these ways, both good and bad, that race is, is going to start affecting your life. And his name is... My name is uh, Claude Katibuke. When we met, we quickly realized that that cafe was not going to work. I mean, you're welcome to come because in my car. Yeah, okay. So we're using your little rented blue Nissan as your recording booth. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Sorry to make it in a car. That's okay, I don't mind. And we started talking. Do a quick sound check. This will be right in your face. It's okay. Claude told me he'd moved to Nashville in 1995 when he was 15. Okay, so middle high school, which would be a tough move for anybody, let alone somebody moving from another country, you know? Yeah, but there were some things he did that helped him fit in pretty quickly. I played soccer, so that was one of the things that helped me meet a lot of other people. And then I joined the football team and met even more people. So he took up American football and became a proper Southern teenage boy, basically. (laughs) Right. His strategy was basically to play sports and keep a low profile about his previous life. Uh, He said a bunch of his new friends didn't even know where he had moved from. I mean, they knew I was from another country, (laughs) but they didn't know what country I was from. Um, They probably thought I was Haitian or something. Haitian because he spoke French and there were some other Haitian kids at his school. But, Gene, as you may be guessing right now, Claude is not Haitian. Yeah, that was the vibe, right? Mm-hmm. So where was Claude from? And I guess why was he being so low-key about it all? Well, Claude is from Rwanda, and he was keeping quiet because, in his words... I was hiding from my story. <laughs> Claude is Rwandan. 
he gets to the U.S. in the mid-90s, so I guess that this probably has something to do with the genocide. Yeah, that's right. Um, Mm. Claude and his family arrived in Nashville fresh from fleeing their home, their country, basically everything they knew. Um, So for many reasons, when Claude got to the U.S., he did not even want to think about his past. And as he would learn, some people didn't want to hear about it. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. I want to talk about how he got to that realization and all the different dynamics that were shaping his particular experience. And I want to talk about what healing wound up looking like for him. But to do all that, we got to go back in time a little to hear about who Claude was before he moved to Nashville. All right, Leah, I'm going to turn the keys to the show over to you, and uh, I'll be back in a few minutes. Claude Gadabuke grew up in Kigali. It's the capital of Rwanda and the country's biggest city. Picture sleek skyscrapers and eccentric architecture surrounded by green, rolling hills. As a young kid, Claude thought his country was the entire world. I knew that there were white people from a part of Rwanda called Europe, and they spoke Kenya Rwanda with a heavy accent. He says the early part of his childhood was idyllic. I was born in a rare African middle class. Claude's mom stayed at home, took care of the family, and his dad was an academic. In fact, when Claude was a tween, his dad traveled to Nashville to study. My biggest worries up until 10 years old were, you know, what do I eat? Can I go play with my friends? Can I sleep over my friends? You know, those type of things. He was also a soccer fanatic. He played whenever he could. His life was good, comfortable, pretty carefree. So when ethnic tensions started to magnify around the country, Claude didn't fully understand the scale of what was going on. He wasn't following the news or politics closely until basically he had to. National radio in both Rwanda and Burundi today broadcast appeals for calm after a plane crash last night. On April 6, 1994, the presidents of both Rwanda and Burundi Juvenal Hibirimana and Cyprian Interiamara were in a plane that got shot down. And the plane carrying them and six other people crashed in flames. Sustained gunfire and grenade explosions started in the center of town just before dawn and are continuing. Claude's mom got a phone call telling her the news. She then shared it with her kids. And my response was, oh my God, I hope the president didn't die because if he died, we're not going to be able to finish the soccer tournament. Of course, the president had been killed, and from there, violence erupted. Hundreds of thousands of people have been killed by the militias. I've seen some of the most terrible things today that I've ever seen. It's been absolutely horrific. Kigali was thrust into chaos. As violence in other parts of the country intensified, Claude says refugees started pouring into the city. People who had fled to the city were stuck outside with no homes and nowhere to go. Meanwhile, the streets were filled with the sounds of screaming and crying, dogs barking, explosions. Claude could hear it from the windows of his home. You know, Rwanda's it's actually a really beautiful country, blue skies and everything. But at the time, during that war and genocide, the sky was covered with a big dark mushroom of dust, smoke, and the stench of 
decomposing human flesh made, made you want to throw up. I mean, I want to throw up now, thinking about that time. Claude and his family quickly realized that the violence wouldn't long stay outside their walls. They were in danger, too. What we saw was people going from house to house, hunting down Tutsis to kill them with machetes in clubs. We went into hiding, and um, we hid for days and nights, and we would hear people inside of our house searching for us to kill us. But the neighbors rescued us, took us from the little storage shed that we were hiding in next to the doghouse, and sheltered us. When it became clear that that situation was unsustainable, Claude and his family made the decision to flee. He, his mom, and his siblings joined together with another small group, and they left with a vague destination of Congo in mind. Some of the journey was on foot. Much of it was in the back of a truck. All of it was awful. Members of militias tried to keep a close watch on who was coming and going. We got stopped at multiple checkpoints. I'm skipping a bunch of them because so many terrible things happened. But at one of those checkpoints, soldiers were checking people's IDs. They stopped when they got to Claude and his mom. They separated me and my mother. They started questioning us, and a guy looked me in the eyes and says, say goodbye to life. And then they walk us away from the street to a little bamboo forest. And at the bamboo forest was a little carpentry shed. And it was raining. Uh, Water was dripping off of that roof. It was like a scene from a scary movie. There was just no music. It was the only thing missing there. There, one of the soldiers pointed to Claude and said, Borrow some shovels and hoes and dig your own grave because we got to bury you after we kill you. By some miracle, other members of Claude's group were able to negotiate, basically beg, for his release. One of the negotiators said, this boy and his mom are not going to make it five miles from here, so let somebody else kill them. And somehow they agreed to that. So the journey continued on and on and on. Until finally, finally, Claude and the rest of his group made it to the border of Rwanda. The distance was basically crossing a street. It was from here to that building. It took us half a day to cross because there were so many people, so many belongings, and it was so crowded, and it was so tight. And if anybody fell, they got trampled on because there was so much panic. There was the shooting and the bombs and everything. We got to the Congo, and we were completely homeless. But I was relieved. That relief was soon replaced by something else. The border between Rwanda and Congo is a lake, Lake Kivu. And this lake was the only source of water. People were bathing in it, animals were bathing in it, and um, there were dead bodies in the lake from the war. We started getting sick, and I literally saw people run up to the pharmacy to get medicine, open the door and fall down and die right there. At that point, Claude and his family were in a new, desperate situation. We were basically illegal immigrants, had no papers. But they did have a connection that not many others had. At that point, we were able to reconnect with my dad. Claude's dad was still in Nashville. 
He'd been desperately worried about his family in Rwanda, but when the war started, he hadn't been allowed to return to them, and pretty soon he wasn't even able to contact them. But when Claude's family got to Congo, they were finally able to call and let him know that they were alive. That call set things slowly in motion. It took more than a year of arranging, applying for visas, getting rejected, repeat. But eventually, Claude's dad was able to get asylum, which meant his family could join him. Finally, in August of 1995, they were reunited. And thus began Claude's journey in the United States. When we come back, a Rwandan teenager makes a new home in the American South. It was, it was really weird to go to a place and see so many, so many white people. That's coming up, y'all. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill, FX's Clipped, now streaming only on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wild Card wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Gene. Leah. Code Switch. Our senior editor, Leah Danella, who you just heard, has been telling us the story of Claude Garabuque. So Claude was just a kid when he was forced to flee his home and his country during the Rwandan genocide in the mid-1990s. And after going through a whole lot, he wound up moving to Nashville, Tennessee, a very different world. Oh, yes. Gene, it's now the summer of 1995. Claude is by then 15. And he and his mom and his siblings move into the one-bedroom apartment in North Nashville that his dad has been living in. It's a black neighborhood not far from Meharry Medical College, where his dad's at school, and right across the street from a housing project called Andrew Jackson Courts. Yikes at that name. Andrew Jackson Courts? Okay. I know, I know. It's still there, actually. Anyway, one of the first things Claude notices in this new setting is the noise. Or, actually, the lack of noise. I was like... This place is so quiet. It's so peaceful. You know, this is not what I'm used to. I was used to, like, you know, a lot of chaos and a lot of noise. There was also the weather. I could barely breathe. I mean, the part of Africa that I'm from is really hot. But just getting used to that humidity was, it was something else. There was the language. 
I couldn't understand a word of anything anybody said. So if I walked past somebody and they said, oh, your shoelaces are untied, I would just smile and keep going. And then, of course, there were the people. It was really weird to go to a place and see so many, so many white people. Even though Claude's neighborhood was mostly black, as we said, he couldn't go to the public school there. They didn't have an ESL program. So I ended up going to a school called Hillsborough High School, which is in a, an affluent part of Nashville, Green Hills. That school had students from all over the place. Claude remembers a mix of white students, black students, and international students from Egypt, Somalia, Sudan, Vietnam, Haiti, Mexico. It was the kind of place where you'd think adults would be used to supporting kids with all kinds of backgrounds and experiences. Right, of course. But one of the first times that Claude tried to open up about his past to someone in this new setting, he got kind of a brutal reality check. Oh, here we go. So in one of his English classes, he was asked to write an essay. Mm-hmm. And he wound up writing about what it was like to leave Rwanda. I must have been 16 when I wrote the story. I just wrote my story the way that I lived it. It was a difficult story to put to words for a lot of reasons. I'm sure my English was really bad. I mean, I know my English was really bad. (laughs) But Claude's teacher had issues with more than just the language. His real problem was with the story itself. His response was, I've never heard this before. You know, like, the way you're telling this story, like, that's not the story that's out there, that's known, you know, that this isn't the the official narrative, basically. Um, And he just said, no, this, this can't be true. Wait, 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 wait. So there's a Rwanda student in the classroom saying, this is what happened to me. And the teacher was like, "Mm, no, that's not what I heard on the news. You're lying. Like, who makes up details of fleeing a genocide for attention in class? Yeah, I mean, Claude was so confused. He did not understand why his teacher didn't believe him. And he was like, what's going on? Yeah, like, why would I even make up a story like this? For what? Yeah, I know. It was baffling. But... Even though at that time, Claude didn't understand all of the dynamics at play there, Gene, you and I have the benefit of time and distance and research. Mm -hmm. So to understand what was really going on in that moment, I think we have to zoom out a little bit and talk about the history of Nashville more broadly. And to do that, I want to introduce you to someone named... His name is LaRotha Williams Jr. LaRotha Williams Jr., (laughs) I know he got to play safety for the Tennessee Titans with a name like that. Either strong safety or like a deacon. (laughs) I'm sorry, sorry, Leah. Who is LaRotha Williams Jr.? I'm a professor that looks at memory, but at the same time, amnesia. And looking at who determines what we remember and what we forget. Um, And as we're walking, tell me, where are we and why are we here? (laughs) Um, This is Hadley Park. It was a plantation during the antebellum period. Um, but in 1912, July 4th, 1912, for that matter, the city opened up this park as the first park in America to be designated for exclusive use by African Americans. This, this space is representative of Black Nashville in a lot of ways. He says it's a place that has a lot of competing identities. There's the origin as a plantation the evolution into the site of all this Black learning and culture and the tension of holding both those realities at the same time. Right. It's balancing all this history, right, which includes being a major slave city and 
the present in which it's a vibrant, you know, techie, culturally rich place. Exactly. So in order to maintain that image, Larotha said there's this erasing that sometimes happens of both blackness and history. He gave this analogy. You think about you inviting your folks home for Thanksgiving. You're saying, y'all come to my house, let's eat Thanksgiving. They come there, they might be there three, four days, and then they leave. But when they leave, you can tell that they've been there, right? Refrigerator's going to be empty. If you got a liquor cabinet, all of the good stuff is going to be gone. Car might be kind of low on gas. If you got kids, something's going to be broken. But be mindful that they've only been there for a little while, right? Four days. Meanwhile, Larotha says Black people were enslaved in Nashville for generations. But so much of the evidence of that presence is nowhere to be seen. If you go by some of the old plantation houses, for example, there's sometimes no mention of how those structures came to be. But if you go and look at the bricks on the houses that were built, chances are you're going to find indentations in the brick that look suspiciously like fingerprints, because that's what they are. They're fingerprints of the guys that made the bricks and laid it. So that history that everyone's trying to ignore is literally kind of habituated into the landscape still. Mm-hmm. But again, certain histories more than others. Larotha was actually working recently on a project to put up historical markers for lynchings that happened in Nashville. And he's worked to get other types of historical markers put up before. But for this project, he noticed he was getting a lot more pushback than he was used to. Extra meetings, the process kept dragging on and on. I began to hear complaints about why are we bringing up these harmful memories in the past? Why are we celebrating lynching? And and that's not the case. It's not that we're celebrating. We're just causing the city to remember this injustice because... 15-year-old boy was kidnapped from the hospital, brought out there, stripped naked, and shot with a 10-gauge shotgun, and they hung him from a tree. The tree is still there. And one of the things that struck me was the parallels between that situation, which was in 1924, and what happened to Claude. He was also about 15 when he was in that bamboo forest, standing alone, thinking he was about to be shot. I imagine that could play into why some people in the U.S. wouldn't want to believe Claude's story. Like, yeah, that happened in that other place. With a different set of racial hierarchies, a different set of mechanics around how race works, right? But a lot of the details of Claude's story may not be as far removed or may not feel as unfamiliar to our own history as a lot of people, like, would be comfortable with. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, and so the, the denial can almost become second nature. Oftentimes we are gaslit. First, there's a, just an outright denial that we experience what we experience. And then there's an erasure. Leah, I'm willing to bet that if you were to go, if you were to find that teacher and ask him about that event, his response would be, well, I don't ever remember doing that. So, Gene, with Claude and his teacher... I don't think either of them was necessarily aware in that moment of the part they were playing in this city's pattern, this, you know, push and pull over remembering and unremembering. Mm-hmm. But even so, the interaction is doing important work, right? It's teaching Claude not to talk about traumatic experiences because he's not going to be believed. So very quickly, when he starts experiencing U.S. racism, 
which, you know, one of the unfortunate rites of passage that so many 16-year-old black kids in the United States experience. Right. He already knows at that point not to make a big deal out of it. He was still in high school the first time he gets profiled and manhandled by the police. It's not long after that that he gets stopped and frisked when he's visiting New York. And there's, like, more mundane stuff he gets talked down to all the time. And he sees the differences in wealth and living conditions and opportunities between black people and white people basically everywhere he goes. There were times when I thought my potentials can be very limited because of racism, because of lack of opportunities and in just the the place that society has decided that we are to occupy as black people. Flash forward, it's the year 2000. Claude is in college at Western Kentucky University and he is checked out. All I wanted to do was play soccer in college, you know, go through the motions, get a degree. Um, I was an okay student and I was doing okay, you know, in college, no criminal record, nothing bad. But I was still a lost young black man, you know, when I look at it. But at some point he gets this internship at basically a library for early childhood education. It wasn't a particularly stimulating job most of the time. All I did was stock books and chat online and things like that. And then when I got bored, I would read books. Then one day, he got to a book about Frederick Douglass. And when I started reading it, I don't know if I did any other work. I remember just leaving work and kept reading. I think I missed class. It was a short book, and he had pictures. It was Frederick Douglass's boyhood. I was like, wow, this guy is so amazing. All right, y'all, explanatory comma time, and the side-eye is very strongly implied here. So Frederick Douglass was a black man born in Maryland around 1818. When he was very young, he was separated from his grandparents and started to work at the Y House Plantation, and he secretly taught himself how to read and how to write, and he was able to free himself at 21 and help free a bunch of other enslaved black folks. And then he dedicated the rest of his life to telling the world about his experiences, and he became America's leading abolitionist. And reading that story for the first time, Claude was amazed, as he said, and also kind of ashamed. I felt useless. I was like, really? This is all I am? This is all I do? Play soccer? You know, I have all these resources. This guy was seven years old when he was turned into basically somebody's microwave or lawnmower or whatever. He was a tool. He was not considered a human being. And he did all of these things. And he used his story. And I have a story. At the time, there was horrific atrocities taking place in the Congo. And many of the people that I fled Rwanda with had been massacred. Most of them were children. I was like, no, 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 I can't, I can't stay silent. I need to do something. And at the time, I remembered in the bamboo forest when they were getting ready to kill us, I, I felt so many emotions. I was so scared. I was, you know, I, sh- I was shaking. I was eventually numb. But the thing that I felt the worst was the loneliness, even though I was standing there with my mother. And uh, one of the things that I thought was, I hope somebody tells the story. And after I left, I didn't do it. I didn't tell the story. It's kind of striking hearing him put it this way, because, you know, he did try to tell a story. And, you know, his teacher shut that down. 
I mean, so one of the things that I wanted to figure out is what would it look like for Claude or other people in similar positions to try and tell their stories? Mm-hmm. And what would that do for them and for other people? Mm. And what did you find? Well, I found a woman named Nkichini Loom Chuonoso. <laughs> so let me ask you this. What made you decide that you, you needed to speak to me? She's an assistant professor of psychology at Florida A&M University. And she and some of her colleagues wrote this theoretical paper that I came across that felt so deeply applicable to Claude's situation. You, you just happened to come across this theoretical psychology paper? You're, you are a dork. I'm sorry. I have to say that. <laughs> One of the things I heard was that that impulse that Claude was having right there, that he needed to start telling his story, was a really wise one. Testifying opportunities in and of themselves allow people to to express whatever it is they have gone through, are going through, and to start to bring meaning to it. In the paper, Nkichi Nialum and five of her colleagues started to think about what people of African descent might need in order to be psychologically healthy. Their premise was that for people who experience ongoing racial trauma, traditional therapy just doesn't cut it. You're still returning to oppressive systems. So that benefit might be temporary. And if one loves others, you want the best for them also. So it really does need to become a collective experience. We need healthy people in healthy environments, healthy people in healthy communities. So... There were two major things that she and her colleagues came up with that they said needed to be complements to the internal work. Building community and fighting for justice. Okay, each one of those things that you named is like a Herculean task unto itself. Like, (laughs) finding a therapist, it's hard. Yes. Therapy is expensive. Making community. I mean, Leah, you know, like you've seen our inbox. So many people over the years have written to us about how hard it is for them, how they're struggling to find their people, you know, whatever that looks like. And then the social justice thing, I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Putting all this together, you might as well be talking about cold fusion or something. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, that is very real. And look, the framework that Nkichini Loom and her colleagues came up with is not a cure-all. But she said that when you do find or create those spaces, people can ideally start to create a kind of shared narrative or a communal history and use that to affirm that what happened to them was real. I've worked with a collective of women, Somali women, who are refugees. And their experience of being refugees, their commonality of being women, um, of being mothers who are trying to address violence in their communities, those are, are very key to bringing people to the table to then begin to have their conversations. And from there, people can start thinking about small first steps of things that they can push for to make their environment more just. So... In all of this, you're you're telling the story of what may be, but you're also trying to create another story for yourself. Which brings us back to Claude. Speaking is liberating. And it not only liberates the person that tells their own story, it also liberates others. So yeah, what did end up happening with him like after his Frederick Douglass-inspired epiphany, of course? <laughs> well, basically, he started talking. Um, he shared his story with more and more people in his life. He told it at an event on campus. 
it was really scary. In the early days when I would share my story publicly, the nights before, I couldn't sleep. I would be up the whole night. But eventually it started to feel less bad. He's heard a bunch of analogies for what happens. I'm going to share the sports one with you, Jane, since Claude is an athlete. You know, when you're training really hard, physical training, at some point, you know, many people who train hard, they've probably experienced this. There is a point at which you throw up. And after you throw up, you catch a second wind. Before that, you're like almost about to pass out. And then you go to the trash can and you let it out. And then you come right back and it's like a brand new person. So... Your story, whether it's a pleasant or unpleasant or difficult stories, I think you have to unload. If you don't unload it, it's really painful to carry it. And so, I mean, I think the ability to get past that part where people will make you feel bad for sharing your story, then you actually do feel liberated. And Claude found that work of storytelling to be so critical that he wound up making it his entire job, pretty much. He's the founder of an organization called Aglan, the African Great Lakes Action Network, which tries to educate and draw attention to war, genocide, human rights violations happening around the world. And he's also the co-editor of a book that just came out, Survivors Uncensored, which shares testimony from more than 100 people who lived through the Rwandan genocide. Which is kind of a risky thing, right? I mean, I was reading recently about how in Rwanda today, speaking very frankly about the genocide, especially in a way that's at all critical of the current government, can get you basically disappeared. Yeah, I mean, Claude talked about that. There are people who are in prison for sharing stories that the government would rather not be told. And I think that idea of strong pushback against people who are naming certain unflattering parts of history is something that Rwanda and the U.S. have in common. I mean, Tennessee was one of the first states to issue what was referred to as the CRT ban, this wave of restrictions about how concepts like race and gender can be taught in public schools. Right. And as we talked about before, CRT, critical race theory, is not taught in K-12 schools anywhere. Right. But that ban makes it really risky for some people to talk about the racial history of the United States or Tennessee without consequences. Even in Nashville, which in some ways is a very liberal, very diverse, very progressive place. And that's why I think the patterns are so important. You know, LaRotha told me at one point that nothing in the city is accidental. And he said the denial of black history and black people's experiences. It's it's not an aberration, it's a feature of our society. So now looking back, that's basically what was happening. The dismissing of a story because the person just happens to be from a background that isn't associated with credibility. And that is a thing in America. All right, y'all. That's our show. You can follow us on Instagram at NPR Codeswitch. If email is more your thing, ours is codeswitch at npr.org. And our newsletter is back. Which you write, Leah? I do. You can subscribe to that by going to npr.org slash codeswitch newsletter. And you can subscribe to the podcast 
wherever you get your podcasts. And we just want to give a quick shout out to our Code Switch Plus listeners. We appreciate y'all. We thank you for being subscribers. Subscribing to Code Switch Plus means you get to listen to all of our episodes without any sponsor breaks. And it also helps support our show. So if you love our work, if you rock with us, please consider signing up at plus.npr.org slash codeswitch. This episode was produced by Courtney Stein and Jess Kung. It was edited by Verilyn Williams. Our engineer was James Willits. And special thanks to Luis Treyes, who is my field editor for this story, as well as Jerry Holmes and NPR's Above the Fray Fellowship, which is how I got to do this reporting. And we will be remiss if we did not shout out the rest of the Code Switch Massive. That's Christina Kala, that's Dalia Mortada, that's Lori Lizaraga, that's B.A. Parker, and that's Steve Drummond. As for me, I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Leah Danella. Be easy, y'all. Leah, what's your sign off with? I don't know. On this week's episode of Wildcard, comedian Bowen Yang says you don't have to feel bad for falling short on mindfulness. I get in my own way by, like, over-privileging the present. That's so interesting because everyone wants to be in the present. I feel like being present is overrated. I'm Rachel Martin. Join us for NPR's Wildcard podcast, the game where cards control the conversation.